Hello, I'm Sophie Kilbert, and in this podcast, we're going to take a little bit of a deeper look into the subject of food. From the anxieties of stockpiling, the queues outside supermarkets, and even the baking of banana bread and creation of sourdough starters on social media, the interest and concerns about food have been at the forefront of people's minds throughout the pandemic. Of course, we all need food. For the most part, we enjoy eating it. So we wanted to focus into the impact that COVID-19 has had on the food industry, how that food gets to us, and how those that work with it and in it have coped, as well as what the future might hold for them and us. Firstly, I'm pleased to speak to Dan Saladino. Dan is a journalist and a regular on food programmes on the radio and TV. Dan, you're in contact with all parts of the food supply chain on a regular basis. And seeing as our need for food hasn't diminished, it's just changed and adapted, I can imagine that experiences have differed hugely. So let's begin with those at the start of the supply chain, the farmers and the producers of our food. I know that when our portfolio managers speak to the board of deer, which we hold in portfolios, they say that farmers are one of the best socially distanced professions – But we've seen headlines and even adverts on TV which emphasise the lack of workers in the UK, fruit pickers and the like. Has that been the biggest impact in farming over the last few months? Well, it's been significant and I guess most importantly, it's one that is a live issue and will continue into the coming months, if, if not years. In the UK... We rely each year on between 60 and 80,000 seasonal workers to arrive to help harvest fruit and vegetables. And because of the, the restrictions on movement because of COVID-19, that has already been a, a big issue. So in April, for example, we saw some of the largest growers chartering aircraft to bring in thousands of migrant workers from Eastern Europe and some smaller Uh, Farmers, without the resources to do that, have just had to rely on family members to pick the crops or leave some in the fields. If we look at at the European context, because the UK does import around 50% of its food, in southern Spain, it's been less of an issue because they have all year round production and a workforce that's permanently in place. And in Italy, they have recently announced an amnesty on 200,000 migrant workers. So this is a a big issue across Europe. In the UK context, it's particularly difficult because of the, the dependence we have on that seasonal workforce. And this is why we've also seen a, a government-backed Pick for Britain campaign. And that was launched back in May and there was a television advert. And I went on the website a few minutes before this conversation to see what's out there for me in my, in my area. And it turns out that I could be picking asparagus in Herefordshire in, until August. So there is work out there and there are new ways in which I guess people who've been furloughed from their jobs, or in fact, if they've lost jobs, um, the farming industry needs them. Now, currently, that government-backed Pick for Britain campaign has generated a relatively high number of recruits to the fields and farms of Britain. So 30% of the workforce at the moment are coming from that domestic pool of people, which is in in terms of uh, the numbers of British workers in farms right now, it's the highest we've seen in in many, many generations. But the Prince of Wales also did mention this phrase of we need pickers who are stickers. And, And I think the issue is, 
are the people who are working in the fields at the moment, will they be hanging around when lockdown measures are relaxed and, and when their jobs come back? So I think there is a really big structural issue in the UK. And just finally on this point, what's also emerging is it's almost like a competition between economies in Europe as well. So, for example, we're seeing in Germany, they're providing tax incentives for migrant workers to head to that country and to help with their harvest. And I think the problem is, the challenge is, because the UK is coming out of lockdown later than other countries, that we could be at something of a disadvantage there. And I guess I can't cover this subject of seasonal workers and workers from Europe without mentioning Brexit, because for the past three years, this has been one of the biggest stories in food and farming is how do we get enough workers in when we might have new restrictions on immigration and obviously we will have new border arrangements in place. So COVID-19 plus Brexit and all the uh, turbulence we've seen in, in recent weeks and months because of COVID, this is a massive question for the future of food in the UK. So, I mean, Dan, are there any practical implications uh, for farming because of the virus? Um, is, is there a problem when, when these new workers might come into the country? Well, that's a really good and topical question because um, when the government has putting in, been putting in plans for um, people arriving into the UK from overseas... Um, the the current situation is that you need to isolate for, for two weeks. Now, for farm uh, operations, clearly that's a, a massive problem because you have um, seasonal workers coming in and you need them to start picking immediately. Um, and so the uh, food industry and the farming sector um, approached government and said, this isn't going to work for us. And in the last couple of weeks, the government has actually announced that there will be an exemption for the agricultural sector so that um, foreign workers coming into the UK will not have to isolate. They will have to say where they're going, but it, they can start work immediately. So although everyone else is having to deal with the virus in work uh, places um, in, in a certain way and the isolation for uh, people arriving from overseas is going to be quite strict, farm workers have an exemption. And I think that shows how important uh, the government understands this year's harvest is going to be and how problematic it is going to be for uh, British farmers. And talking about the future, and, and you mentioned Brexit there, one of the things that we have been discussing for a while is really how global the economy in the UK particularly has become, how used we are to outsourcing things, not just not just labour by, by getting foreign pickers in to, to help us, but also the fact that we import so much into the UK, um, food along with other things. Um, times like this obviously really highlight the problems with this approach and effectively, excuse the pun, of putting all our eggs in one basket. Do you think in the UK that we can produce enough to be sustainable or is this really a wake up call that we're not doing it? I think, uh, and, and I've been um, a food journalist for more than a, a decade now, uh, and I've covered all kinds of issues in terms of the 2007-2008 global food spike and uh, things like foot and mouth disease. Um, so big stories about turbulence in the supply chain. This is the biggest story, 
I guess, anyone working in food journalism and in the food industry will ever encounter. And I think for that reason, the very biggest questions are being asked about future food security. What's been interesting to look at um, in recent months is is what the response has been from the industry, from, from government. So every day there has been a gathering of a, a hundred or more different organisations. This is called the, the Food Industry Resilience Forum, and it's chaired by a former global supply director of, of Unilever called Chris Tyus. Every day they have been meeting and doing conference calls to make sure that UK food uh, security hasn't been compromised by COVID-19 and the lockdown. And, and, and I think most people would agree that after the initial spikes in demand, you know, all the panic buying, that actually the, the industry has done a very good job at keeping supermarket shelves filled. And also because of the disruption of the restaurant industry, the pub industry closing down uh, during the lockdown. So 30% of our calories before COVID-19 were, were consumed outside of the home. All of that has meant this big shock to the supply chain. We, we saw farmers, for example, pouring milk down drains and more than a million litres of milk went to waste um, in April because of the coronavirus pandemic. And we didn't see flour on the shelves. Well, in, in some cases, it wasn't because there wasn't enough flour. It's because of the bottlenecks in the supply chain and the packaging wasn't there. So I think this has been a huge shock to you know, what we what we describe as our just-in-time supply chain in the UK, which has given us some of the cheapest shopping baskets in Europe. And so I think it is posing very big questions as to whether that's the system that we want to carry on with in, in the future and if we do actually need to find some ways of building more resilience into the supply chain. And what we were discussing earlier, you know, uh, the situation on farms, that's one form of food security, but I, th I think this is the other, you know, the supply chain logistics. We have such a fragile system. It's brilliantly efficient when things are flowing well. When these disruptions happen, as we are seeing with COVID-19, it's a massive shock. And we have a national food strategy underway right now, which is having to, <laughs> having to take in a lot of information and detail about what the impact of COVID-19 has been. And I think it's it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of ideas are going to have to be developed uh, for the future because of COVID. It's interesting you mentioned there that um, one of the reasons we've developed this just in time is, is about cost, essentially. Um, people want food cheaper and, and cheaper, and that's really driven prices down, uh, which has also meant that we've relied much more on some of the bigger supermarkets, which can do that. They can squeeze the suppliers to get the best price. Um, and you see the likes of Amazon, for example. I mean, people are heavily relying on their Amazon deliverers for, for whatever they might need. And the boxes are piling up, as is Amazon's share price over the last few weeks. On the flip side of that, there has also been a slightly more concerted effort in lockdown to maybe shop more locally and people are maybe considering what they're buying a bit more and trying to reduce waste. Do you think that this situation, that the, the COVID-19, people spending more time at home, could represent a turning point in consumer behaviour? I do. And I, I think this is this is so interesting. It's going to going to be fascinating for people like me to be watching and reporting on. Um, as you've mentioned, more people have, have been spending time at home and they've been cooking 
from scratch, for example, which which explains, by the way, why there has been a a, a 15% um, dive in the sales of frozen ready meals. And, and I mentioned the um, the flour sales and uh, going up as well as people are, are baking from home. So I do think that that has already made a big impact on the way people are shopping and home deliveries have gone up from uh, the UK's biggest retailers. But at the same time, they've also gone up for um, veg box schemes. So uh, Riverford, for example, which is one of the biggest um, suppliers of veg boxes, has around um, 60,000 customers um, each week. And they've seen, in some cases, between 25 and 40% increases. So I, I think there is the opportunity for this to have a very big impact on people's behaviour going into the future. Obviously, you know, the, the, the big question is whether that is just a temporary thing or whether people actually will, will change their behaviours um, long term. Um but I, I do think people have discovered new um, ways of shopping and, and buying. So I mentioned that milk um, crisis earlier um, where um, dairy farmers have had to you know, dispose of milk you know, because restaurants and other um, customers have, have closed down. That led to uh, many cheesemakers, specialist cheesemakers around the country, um, being left with tons of cheese um, in their um, reserves. Some of it soft cheeses that would go out of date very quickly. Many of them went on YouTube. Many of them tried to communicate with their local communities and the response has been incredible. So there have been cheesemakers in Wales who sell most of their um, produce you know, to restaurants in London who've found a new customer base locally um, in their area and they've been going out and delivering in, in vans. I think we'll just have to see whether whether it does carry on in, into the future and whether it is a, a, a fundamental change in, in the way people shop or, or just temporary. Thanks ever so much for your time, Dan. We really appreciate that. So with a potential change in consumer habits coming, I spoke to Akil Sashak, the Global Head of Consumer at Rothschild & Co. He has over 30 years' experience dealing with a wide range of consumer companies, including Coca-Cola, Nestle, Asahi and Associated British Foods. So, Akil, how have the last couple of months felt different from anything that the companies you work with have seen before? And what sort of impact has that had on them? Yes, this is a, an absolutely unique set of circumstances that many have confronted where they have seen large parts of the market that they were serving disappear altogether, while at the same time they've had to sustain uh, all of their fixed costs. Obviously, latterly, through the government furloughing schemes and the like, uh, that has taken some of the strain off them. But it means that many, many companies have confronted liquidity issues, funding issues around covenants and the like, which uh, many of them, particularly financially healthy companies, had never had to contend with ever before in, in their histories. So it is really quite an extraordinary uh, set of circumstances and beyond all of that, there is really an incredible degree of uncertainty about precisely when uh, uh, normal service will resume, as it were. And so that uncertainty compounded with large parts of the markets they serve having disappeared is, uh, is quite extraordinary. Mm. And the world's obviously changed, but we don't quite know how it's changed to a certain extent. We don't know what the future is necessarily going to hold for these companies. And obviously, consumers have had to change and adapt 
over the last couple of months um, to some extent. What do you think the most noticeable changes that you've seen from consumers? Well, look, I think uh, obviously the out-of-home uh, market for consumers has disappeared altogether. And so all consumption has been concentrated uh, in the, in the take-home segment uh, of the market. Um, so uh, the sort of convenience impulse uh, food market has, 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 has stopped altogether and consumers have uh, had to adapt to uh, uh, eating three meals a day at home. Uh, in many cases, these are consumers who'd never eaten any meals at, at home, and uh, undoubtedly it's, uh, it's uh, brought about um, a willingness to uh, engage in uh, scratch cooking at home in, in a way none had contemplated, and certainly doing much more uh, shopping for uh, everyday groceries than, uh, than, than, than we've seen, and uh, this obviously reflected itself in um, uh, a big bump in uh, the sales of uh, traditionary grocery supplies, which uh, historically had uh, experienced a pretty stagnant market. Are people spending more time at home cooking from scratch, as you say? That kind of fits in with a trend that we had been seeing in terms of wellness and people concentrating maybe more on their health. Um, and that trend of home cooking generally tends to bring health benefits. Do you think that will continue even once people can go out and, and eat out more? I'm not sure that it will. I think the world uh, on the other side of this will look more like it used to than not. Uh, um, certainly people have had to adapt their behaviors uh, in light of not having any choice in the matter. But uh, I, I think um, the appetite of people to uh, congregate and uh, go out will uh, uh, will we'll resurge once we're on the other side of it. So uh, I, I think there will be uh, a little bit more home cooking because there will be a little bit more home working, I suspect, um, as a lot of companies have invested huge amounts in infrastructure to enable people to work from home. So I think that uh, people won't necessarily revert to the pattern of uh, uh, of, of uh, going to their uh, workplaces five days a week where they can carry out their jobs from, from, from home. Mm, hard to get that crystal ball out yet. Although one trend that we had seen quite dramatically before um, the situation that, that we're now in, and certainly it's continued, is that shift between the high street, between people going physically to the shops and, and buying things, to doing a lot more on the internet. That was already a changing habit, and that's just been exacerbated. Do you think that shift will continue to, to stretch towards e-commerce, um, or do you think that there will be some sort of pullback? Can that be reversed? Well, I certainly think that all the, the mega trends, if you will, that were present before uh, coronavirus struck us will have been exacerbated in many cases uh, uh, and accelerated by, um, uh, by, by what has happened and, and uh, the, the, the drift towards online shopping and e-commerce, uh, 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 I think, was one that was already prevalent. And I think uh, a lot of people have had to adapt and embrace uh, that kind of behavior much more rapidly than would otherwise have occurred. And I think that the shift towards online has probably accelerated uh, by you know, 15, 20 years. But 
I, I, I think that we're obviously seeing uh, an exaggerated impact at the moment, and I think that some of that will obviously recede. But uh, all the uh, companies that I work with are certainly recognizing that uh, online uh, e-commerce is going to be a much more significant part of their businesses going forward than they were anticipating um, uh, it would have been at, at, at this stage, uh, absent uh, COVID-19. And I, I think it won't just be going uh, to Amazon or Ocado for your food shopping, but I think uh, more and more companies are thinking about um, uh, uh, direct D2C uh, engagement, uh, uh, bypassing uh, even the e-retailers. So it looks from your point of view that we'll all be spending a lot more, more time at home in the future and brands will have to adapt and, and deal with that. Um, thanks ever so much for your time, Akhil. We really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. So with that analysis, then, it seems like there will be an impact on businesses whose focus is that out-of-home experience. So I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Ainsworth. Paul is chef patron of the Michelin-starred Paul Ainsworth at Number 6 in Padstow and two other acclaimed restaurants in the town, including the Mariners, which has just celebrated its one-year anniversary. He's also a very familiar face on cooking programmes on the TV, and he spoke to us from the kitchen of one of his restaurants. Paul, how did it feel when lockdown was announced and when it became clear that you weren't going to be able to keep the restaurants open? In a nutshell, it was the it was the worst week of my life. Um, apart from you know uh, losing my losing my father a few years ago, it was it was horrific. Um, and from in my own experience with the style of businesses that I operate, um, I think the hardest thing was protecting the team, but then trying to make sure that the team understands, you know, that you're trying to do your best by them. And, you know, the announcement came from the government on the Monday to um, tell everybody to stop going out and, you know, stop going to pubs, clubs, bars, restaurants, and so on. But it left my industry completely in limbo. So, we were still operating. We were like literally hemorrhaging bookings like you've never seen. Uh, and then sort of a bit of a strange thing happened in Cornwall. Like but on the Wednesday, we weren't taking bookings, but we, we were still doing trade. And the team were kind of then sort of thinking, well, why aren't we closing? And because we weren't giving any answers, you're like, well, I can't close. I can't just shut this all down. What? How am I going to pay you? You know, how am I going to, how am I going to make us survive? So then, on the Friday um, afternoon, late, 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 late afternoon, the furlough was announced. Um, and you know, the furlough, you know, you ha you have to hand it to to the chancellor. The furlough was, you know, was an incredible scheme. It was, it, it was, you know, very proactive, but. The way I describe it is, you know, when you're running businesses, you know, it it stops you from going off the edge of the cliff. But that's all it does do. It doesn't it doesn't pull you right away from the edge and kind of keep you safe. And the extension on furlough uh, has been fantastic. It's been very welcomed. But, you know, from my, you know, my businesses, you know, I still have huge outgoing still. All I've done is try to stay as positive as I can. Um, we haven't made any redundancies, um, you know, as of yet. It's not something that I, you know, want to do. It's not something that's in our plan yet. 
but you know we have to get trading soon and and hopefully um, that's going to be um, in July uh, but it doesn't end there you know when once we start trading what's that going to look like what's the what's the confidence going to be like in the British public um, and that's something that I think is you know, something that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, I'm very optimistic. I think that we're, uh, you know, a resilient nation that, you know, will want to get out and will want to kind of go out and, um, you know, eat in restaurants again. But you just can't take that for granted. Mm. Uh, and then, and then, lastly, also as well, you know, it's, you know, Cornwall has been, you know, Cornwall has been, you know, in a good place through this. We've uh, we've had a, you know, an ultra low transmission rate. It's been the lowest in the UK right from the beginning and you know i i don't want to you know of course i've got to make i've got businesses they've got to start earning again and stuff but also as well you don't want to kind of be involved in being the one that's sort of flying the flag and telling everybody to come to cornwall it's kind of trying to be as positive as you can but also being a realist and yeah. and, and 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 behaving in a in a very kind of realist um, way and having a good thought process about this and not just thinking that there's going to come a day where it's all over and the sun's shining and it's and it's it's kind of all back to normal. It's about trying to be a realist and it's about trying to how we adapt and learn to kind of get back to some kind of normal, a new normal. And that is going to be with coronavirus present. Yeah, and we'll have to learn to live with it. And obviously yes. because you've got those, you've, you've obviously got quite a few restaurants all down in Cornwall. It's very much at the yeah. heart of, of what you do. You're obviously not, you're obviously very important, not just to your staff, but also the suppliers that you work with. Um, I know you want to serve the best local projects, not just at your restaurant, but you've got the cookery school and the hotel that you've got as well. How has the relationship with your suppliers been affected by this? Uh, great question. Um, yeah, badly. Um, because it, it, it's it's a snowball effect, isn't it? You know, you've got you've got the fishermen, you've got the farmers. Um, you know, I mean that kind of covers. And you know, farmers isn't just meat. So when I say farmers, I mean dairy, vegetables, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, restaurants and hotels. We've stopped buying produce. So then, when we stop buying produce, the the middlemen, the people that distribute this produce, like our fish supplier Johnny Godden, our butchers um, Philip Warren, they then they then haven't got anyone to sell to. So if they've got no one to sell to, then they are not buying from the fishermen and the farmers. So then the fishermen and the farmers have been diversifying and relying on either going direct um, and selling to the public direct. But that's not an easy thing. You know, if you live in London, you're not you're not in rural locations. Mm. So, yeah, OK, I can go down to the harbour in Padstow and I can go and buy some fish, but not everyone can do that. So then the fishermen have then had to kind of like, well, who's going to who's going to sell this fish? Who's going to sell this fish for us? Because they. That, you know their job's hard enough you know by kind of risking risking their lives and it literally is risking your life when you go out to sea and and how hard they work to get fish and then they bring it back and they rely on that person to sell it but if that person's not there then you know the price is being driven down i mean fish is at an all-time low in what people are paying for it and it's nice and people are enjoying it and 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 that kind of thing but actually it's 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 not sustainable it it will not be sustainable for the for the fishermen and the farmers to to carry on like that 
it's it's extremely tough, um, you know, on our suppliers, and we we just we just do everything we can to promote them. You know, I've done a lot of um, videos and stuff and showing people how to cook dishes at home, you know, encouraging people to kind of buy fish and and sort of buy, um, you know, try and try and look for other sources like farm shops and, um, you know, other places to buy your food other than just going to Tesco's or, or any of the other supermarkets. And you said earlier that obviously we need to learn to probably live with Corona, that it's not going to be gone overnight and I think that's particularly salient for the hospitality industry because I think you're probably going to have to deal with it the most uh, with the ongoing social distancing restrictions. How do you see it working? You said that you could see a situation where you have to make it work on 30% of your normal covers. Can you see that as as a viable option? Is is it better to be open doing that than, than not? It's a very good question, um, and and I think that I think you know a lot of the time in business you always hear you always hear that kind of cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason, don't you? Location, location, location. Yeah. Um, and I think that for me, my location is probably going to be my my saving grace. If I'm really utterly honest with you, it's going to be where I am. It's a desirable location. It's it's. You know, international travel is going to be, um, you know, is going to be quite difficult for quite some time. And I think that people are going to just want to get out and they're wanting to, you know, get near to a beach. And as you know, we've got, you know, beautiful beaches down here. Uh, but it's about having that balance of, like I said at the beginning, of, of making sure that also that the people of Cornwall are protected. The people of Cornwall are safe. My team are safe and, and, and our customers are safe, of course. Uh, how how it looks in my restaurants, um, I'm quite confident with that. All of our restaurants, me and Emma, have always designed them in a way that, like, you know, they're intimate, they've got wonderful atmospheres, you know, you know, we, we're used to having um, those difficult times. We're not based in London. We're not in that microclimate of having that consistent business all year round. So I know what it's like to have to run a business where in the summertime I've got to be trying, you know, to really put that wool on my back to keep me warm through the winter. And I'm used to that. I've been doing it now for 15 years. So, you know, when we run our businesses, we don't have, um, you know, an average wage percentage throughout the whole of the 12 months. We have an average at the end, but that wage percentage might be as high as 50, 60 percent in the deepest, darkest months of winter because we are in a holiday destination. But then in the summertime, we've got to get that percentage right the way down so it evens out and it, it you know, and it's a comfortable sort of wage, wage percentage of between, you know, 31 to 33%. Now, I know how to do that and I've been doing it for a long time and it's not an easy thing to do. And the point that I'm making is, is that I know what it's like for my restaurants to have like 10 people in them and, and it works and they're, that there it works because the team are very you know the team is run in a very family style way the team know that like our customers are absolutely everything um and and always will be and our our restaurants and the pub and our rooms and the cookery school the the ethos has always been we are privileged to have you not that you're you should be privileged to be here the bit that i suppose that worries me the most is is the is the the confidence in in the public um, and and how 
and how the public will, will react when they are allowed to go back out. And it'll be interesting to see how, how that happens. And I'm, I'm not being negative. I'm very positive. The glass is, you know, the glass is, is half full. And, um, and, I, and I'm hoping that, you know, we can, you know, start to, start to get back to, you know, you know normal, normal business. But it's not going to be normal. It will be a new normal. And um, and how we and how we kind of cope with that is remains to be seen. And I suppose it's interesting that you've picked up on the trying to be positive there. It's obviously been an incredibly difficult time for you. Um, but what positives have there been? Have you managed to find that that so-called silver lining over the last couple of months? Definitely. I mean, look, I'm going to start with the most important one, you know, doing the job I do. You know, I leave in the morning and I get home late at night. Um, it's, it's, it, you know, I'm not saying it's a, it, it's right, but it's and until until the hospitality industry, you know, can can find a sort of better working practice, it is what it is, and and it's something that it's you know you make your bed and lie in it. So the opportunity for me to have the time that I've had with my little girl who's four and she starts school in September, so that. And being able to have that time with my wife and our um, and our two little dogs has been just the best thing. When you're trying to achieve something and you're doing it for them and you're trying to build something and, and, and create something, sometimes you can get a bit lost in it and you can get a bit wrapped up in, in it and you're and you're trying your hardest to to make to get to this point of having achieved the success and, and, and achieve something that is, you know, that is really, really great. And then have that point where you're going to enjoy it with your, you know, with your family, but it doesn't, life doesn't always work like that. And it can chuck, it can chuck, you know, really sort of, you know, tough things at you. And, um, and I think that COVID-19 has, has really kind of made me look at my, you know, my life personally and, and professionally and, and actually think, yeah, just just kind of resetting again. And like I say, having that chance to look at your life from that sort of helicopter view and and just, yeah, maybe do things, maybe do things differently. Well, not maybe, definitely do things differently. So that's been the biggest silver lining for me. Um, and then, you know, second is just how my team, you know, we've got 132 people on furlough and 15 that didn't take it because they just joined us and have been taking work elsewhere. Um, and I've got to say every single one of them has been phenomenal, has been absolutely phenomenal. And because everything happened so fast, we we were we were told to shut from uh, the Friday uh, as of the midnight. And. I, I, you know, I had to really kind of like get things done as quick as I could. And you can imagine it's not just a case of turning the sign around, saying closed and locking the door. You know, we're not a clothes shop. We're not, we're not retail. You know, we've got, we've got thousands upon thousands of pounds of produce. You know, we had to clean freezers, fridges. We had to kind of, what we're going to do with all this produce. So we had to work as quick and as fast as possible and as safe as possible. So we cooked all the food for the, for the community. We distributed it to Polzef, Rock, Weybridge, Padstow. Um, and then uh, once we had got that done, I then recorded um, a video um, to then go on uh, our company WhatsApp. So it went to all of our team. 
And I, you know, I just said to them to, you know, just, you know, stay healthy, you know, stay mentally fit, physically fit, look after yourselves. Um, you know, me and Emma are going to look after you. You know, don't don't worry, don't panic. If anyone's got any immediate money troubles, to come to me, um, like individually, and we're going to help. We are going to help you get through this. They're for me the main silver linings of of, of COVID nineteen. It's it's taught me a lot about myself. It's made me reassess and reevaluate my own self, but it's also I didn't think I could be any more prouder of, of, of the group of individuals that, that helped me and Emma run these businesses, you know, day in, day out. And they have just been phenomenal. And it's amazing to be able to thank them on a platform such as this. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. Um, we really do appreciate it. And um, certainly without flooding Cornwall with visitors, um, I certainly can't wait to, to come down and and enjoy um, a lovely meal in, in the beautiful surroundings as soon as I possibly can do. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So time will tell then whether COVID-19 will have a fundamental impact on consumer behaviour. There has certainly been a fourth shift in people's focus to experiencing things at home and certainly spending more time there. But as we see lockdown ease, will memories be short and behaviour revert just to the way it was? Will there actually not be a new normal? We'll just go back to the old one. For some, spending more time at home with their family and leading a slightly slower pace of life, making more food at home and reducing the amount of it they throw away has become a welcome respite. But as life starts to speed up again, will convenience, cost and ease be the commodities that we value more? Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.